uh, since it is the season of uh, family and fun and um, good spirits, um, I wanted to take this opportunity to thank my Arlington Media family, uh, the engineers, community producers, and other staff who have coached me, given me ideas, and bared with all of my editing questions as I build this show here at Arlington Independent Media. During this season, if you're looking for a place to support financially, please consider giving to Arlington Independent Media. You can visit WERA.FM, that WERA, WERA 96.7, is the local community radio station here where we record this show. Again, WERA.FM, click on donate and support community voices such as my own and many others here at the studio who are bringing amazing content to the community. So stay tuned for more global affairs topics coming up in 2018. I'm super excited about um, our upcoming guests. And again, if you want to hear more, just let us know, shoot us an email or or drop a note um, on our social media pages to let us know what's on your mind and what issues you want to hear about. You've tuned into What in the World right here on WERA 96.7 FM and streaming online at WERA.FM. I am your host, Bumi Akinasotu. And what is the final episode of What in the World for 2017? I thought we'd take a look at the year that just passed and take a look at what's ahead in 2018. Our social media feeds, um, what we see on the television and in the newspapers, um, are inundated with news about more protests, more bombings, or threats of bombings, more Twitter beefs between people, uh, more natural disasters and humanitarian crises. And um, it's a lot and frankly depressing. And so since going through every issue uh, would make us crazy, um, and we don't have time to do all of that, I thought that we could hear from our listeners about what America should or shouldn't do And also hear from our experts about what happened this year and how they might affect Americans going forward. So I have two amazing women, Jenna Ben-Yehuda and Claire Casey, um, have a wealth of experience uh, in global affairs issues. Let's start with Jenna. Jenna Ben-Yehuda is the founder of the Women's Foreign Policy Network, a global membership organization of 2,900 women leaders in national security. She is also the co-author of the hashtag MeTooNatSec, which some of you may have uh, read about in Time magazine and, and throughout the news. Jenna served for 12 years at the State Department and worked on multi-million dollar foreign assistance programs. And she teaches uh, graduate courses on security in the Americas at George Washington University. And she speaks fluent Spanish. She's also from Southern California. Woo-woo. That's been... <laughs> I think a half of my guests really are from Southern California. Represent. (laughs) My second guest is Claire Casey. Claire Casey is the managing director of FP Analytics and FP stands for foreign policy analytics. Um, She is our resident researcher, having created and now heads FP Analytics. Claire consults on emerging trends on global issues around the world and provides research and analysis for global leaders um, all around all around the world. And she's a regular writer on energy, economic and security issues. You may have seen some of her work in the Financial Times, the Daily Beast, uh, Foreign Policy Magazine, as well as many other well-known outlets. So, ladies, thank you so much for being here. um, And I look forward to this great this great conversation. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Boomi. So uh, in true fashion on this show, we try to bring in some personal elements. Tell us, uh, let's start with you, Claire. Um, How did you get to the world of foreign policy? Was there something in your life as a child or in college or somewhere that sort of sparked your interest in what's happening abroad? I would say it's in my DNA. Both my parents were foreign service officers. They met in the U.S. Embassy in Costa Rica. Um, I spent my childhood living abroad, running the halls of embassies on the weekends while my dad would go to work. Um, And so it's really been a sort of lifelong interest and and part of my existence. And I knew I wanted to continue to be engaged in international issues, but not necessarily on that exact path. And, Mm -hmm. And focusing on it from Washington, looking out in the world and engaging from a perspective of, of finding some interesting answers and trends has really been the, the fit for me. Yeah. And what about you, Jenna? There are probably two factors um, that uh, 
led me to getting the uh, foreign policy bug. Um, One is being the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor. So I think I grew up always just really aware uh, of a world beyond our borders and and the implications um, for life in America of what what was happening around the world and how the U.S. could shape that. And the other thing, too, I think, is growing up in Southern California, I started taking Spanish in public schools in seventh grade. And so got to go uh, to East L.A. and and watch the Day of the Dead uh, processions and really be a part of the culture and just kind of fell in love with um, the Mexican American community, um, studied abroad, and kind of so on and so forth. Love the idea of being able to talk to so many other people around the world yeah. by learning a language. Yeah, uh, came to Washington to study, and uh, never left. <laughs> so uh, we are a Washingtonian, as as many, or you are Californian. I, I, I'm bi-coastal. <laughs> okay, <laughs> got it, got it. And uh, uh, Claire, uh, you said you grew up sort of in embassies and sort of around yeah. the world and, and with your parents traveling and, and working in embassies. So I'm always curious. It's kind of like, you know, the military kids when people say, well, where are you from? Right. Like, how do you answer that question? Oh, I'm from Washington, D.C. Okay. I was born at GW. <laughs> oh, got, um, it, got it. And, okay. But left within a month uh, and, and have always come home here. Um, and I do think one of the things when Jenna was talking about be- being engaged in the world and, and realizing how much it impacts you, when you grow up overseas, mm-hmm. it's actually quite different from being in the military because embassy kids are living within the societies they're mm-hmm. they're posted in. So you're not on a base. You're not removed. Your friends in your school are often from that country or from other countries around the world. Mm-hmm. And so you grow up in an international community. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is is a really formative experience. Um, thank you both for sharing that. Um, let's let's get into the, the, the juicy stuff. I have a list of our listeners can't see it. Um, I have my short list of around 20 things. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a lot in your view. Um, and, and Jenna, we'll start with you. What events of the past year have really been significant for America uh, and that you feel will have some um, impacts on Americans going forward? There, there's so many to choose from, but in your, in your view, what are the, some, that, some that are pretty significant? Yeah, it was quite a year uh, and we're not done yet. Um, so there's so <laughs> much right. to, to reflect on. Um, you know, I think... Um, as is true with so many issues in foreign affairs, sometimes we don't feel the effects of decisions um, for months, if not years to come. And so while I think there were so many crises that kind of graced the pages of newspapers, um, some of the things that keep me up at night are um, are issues which I, I don't think will truly feel the impact of for a long time. Um, and one of those, um, I think, is... Uh, What's happening at the State Department? Mm. Um, I have concerns institutionally about our national security apparatus and its ability to be sufficiently resource, resourced uh, and agile enough to meet the threat environment um, with which we're confronted. And so uh, as somebody who really grew up uh, in the State Department, um, because I did start there, I think, as a toddler, officially. <laughs> um, I was still uh, an undergraduate when I started. Um, you know, looking at the 30% cuts um, that have been put forward, uh, looking at the uh, 8% reduction of uh, the workforce and the buyouts that the department seeks to achieve by the spring, um, the the large swath of talent that has resigned uh, to varying degrees of in various, I think, levels of willingness or unwillingness to do so. Um, but certainly for many, not according to what they had thought their plans might be. Um, that's a, a lot of talent that's leaving the workforce and talent that's taken decades to cultivate. And mm-hmm. why does it matter? Um, I think it matters because, you know, the State Department is in many respects the kind of general health and preventive care mechanism of the United States government. Um, And if we think about the State Department as kind of going for your annual checkup and eating uh, eating healthy foods and exercising, uh, and you think of the military as the emergency room, um, when you curtail 
the budget and the resources of that kind of good health and preventative environment, uh, and you strip yourself of those tools, you're left with going to the emergency room, uh, which you know is the most expensive uh, option and is not going to be good for your overall health. So I do worry that one of the quieter stories uh, over the last year is really the dismantling of the department. And that's talent that has been cultivated over decades and which will be really hard to restore. It's not just a matter of kind of flipping that switch back on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are men and women who protect American interests all over the world. And so when these folks aren't able to be fully resourced and out there doing their work, it means that U.S. Re- interests are not represented and they're not defended. And that has really broad ranging implications across all of the other issues that underpin our national security framework. Claire, what about you? What are some events from 2017 that are really significant to you and, and that you think Americans will feel either, re, you know, fairly soon or in the future? Right. Um, so when I think about this past year, I have the the benefit of having started the year thinking a lot about foreign policy and what it would mean to have this current administration. We actually launched a big report right after inauguration on the future of foreign policy um, with the Trump administration. And I, I, I guess the good news is we're not at war yet. Um, <laughs> if, that's, I mean, if that's the bar we're working with, um, my goodness. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that is on, yeah. on some level the bar. Mm-hmm. A, a lo- the predictions were pretty much right. And, and I would lay those out in sort of three categories. The first is an erosion of U.S. leadership. So the U.S. stepping back from really important and also just sort of obvious issues of common interest. Climate change is obviously at the top of that list. And I think what's so, um, I don't want to say it's ironic, but the fact that China is, is going to the World Economic Forum and telling everyone, it's us, we're going to be the leader, isn't because they are concerned about climate change. It's because they have an urban air pollution problem that's a domestic political issue and because they recognize the tremendous economic opportunity for their country on being at the leading edge of this and taking a global leadership role. We talked about that and in our last episode, actually, on, Par- on Paris. Maddie Stanislaus came in and talked about the economic. Right. So so this isn't a soft issue. Right. This is actually a U.S. competitiveness issue that a business-oriented administration, you would think, would be absolutely seizing. So so that, the, the erosion of U.S. leadership. I think the erosion of U.S. credibility. Mm-hmm. So the, the lack of um, process and just fundamentally good sense going into how the U.S. presents itself to the world, how statements are made, um, and all of that. And I don't need to rattle off right. the number of times that our president has fired off a tweet that is not only disrespectful of a foreign leader, but just just sort of absurd and provocative. Or just even in person, how he's treated his Absolutely. colleagues. You know, the, the infamous Absolutely. video of him pushing the, the, the president. I can't remember if it was a Germany or right. somebody, you know, off the stage. Or right. It's just like, really, is that professional? So you have what you could see. You could see an isolationist America that still behaved with a basic um, uh, foreign policy strategy and yeah. professionalism. Yeah. So if you combine the pulling back and the abdication of 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 our our, our past role as the world leader mm-hmm. in, in so many of these issues, you combine that with this lack of credibility and lack of, of respect, honestly, that's being given to the United States. And then you add what I would say is the third element, which is a dramatic escalation because of that in the level of risk around some of the most volatile conflicts in the yes, world. Like. So Iran and North Korea are the ones that come. <laughs> like. But it's not just those two. I mean, we're going to be going into another set of elections in 2018, both here and in Europe, where we all need to be very worried about what the Russians are going to do. And how is that going to be managed? Iran, I find terrifying. I did a, a simulation in the Middle East in March of last year where we played through how that could escalate. What was terrifying about that exercise were how few off-ramps there were, Mm -hmm. how few opportunities for de-escalation once a provocative action had been taken. Mm -hmm. And I think with Iran and with North Korea, and especially with North Korea, you see that as we sort of pump up this this the rhetoric and the the tension around these issues the opportunity right. for not conscious entry into conflict but for miscalculation right. to draw 
the, our country and the world into something really, really catastrophic. Right. I don't think is fully appreciated by by the White House. Yeah. Well, if you think about how much nervousness there was just with the military exercises that had long been scheduled in the Korean Peninsula, uh, and how uh, you know there was so much concern that. Uh, just how quickly things could be misinterpreted as a sign of as an act of aggression that the North Koreans would respond. I mean, don't you think that points to that? Um, there's a real unease uh, around so many of these issues that yeah. that those things could be real touch points, flashpoints. I, I where I console myself is <laughs> yeah. that when the U.S. used to say something or do something, it was assumed that that was based on a real strategy, mm-hmm. tremendous thought, thought, and that that signal meant something. Right. And the only way I sleep at night these days is the assumption I'm hoping the rest of the world is making that that these statements and actions are the sort of rantings of an unhinged yeah. person. Yeah. Um, for how we rebuild that credibility when we well, want it right. again. That's, 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 that's the issue. And that's the and we talk about and you know, we'll, we'll later on we'll talk with um, we'll hear from uh, Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins and she talks mm-hmm. about this issue of cooperation <laughs> and 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 how what you're talking about, uh, Claire, cooperation sort of being the 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 bedrock of of how we engage in the world and how others see us, right? right? And if you're going to ask somebody to do something, you can bop them over the head and say, do it. Right. Um, or you can, you know, diplomatically use your soft skills, your professionalism, your community or your experts to figure out the best course of action, right? And I, one of the, again, uh, our listeners, um, when I was listening to the recordings, th- th- there's a, a real sense with people that, you know, we should just take care of ourselves, Right. And I, I, I struggle with this a lot. Um, when I created this show, um, I, I see the connection. Right. I, I see, you know, relatives who work, who are who are in the military, for example, who who get sent out um, to fight or to, you know, you know, work in Iraq. Right. So I can see sort of some of the direct connections or, you know, um, Jenna sipping on some coffee here. Right. And so. <laughs> The coffee beans probably came from a country we trade with, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So if we're, you know, saying horrible things about Colombia or about, you know, Mexico or wherever we get our coffee beans, right? I think about the impact that that has on trade or on my coffee, right? So Claire, what are some examples like of maybe things that are not very, you know, clearly connected, but you know, like you said, later down the line <laughs> might impact us in some way. I'll actually take your cue on coffee. Okay. Um, because I do a lot of work on climate change. And that's an issue that we're constantly yeah, grappling absolutely. to make present for people absolutely. today. Although yeah. as wildfires sweep <laughs> California and, and we have all these very obvious signs um, that things are not right with our, our climate, it is, I think, getting getting better. But it's a huge national security issue. And one of the more obvious examples of that is that millions of people in Central America are employed in coffee production. Mm -hmm. And that coffee production is currently at risk from rising temperatures. Mm -hmm. So if that industry falls apart, the kind of migration flows that Mm -hmm. we've looked at on our Mm -hmm. southern border, we haven't seen anything. The level of instability and violence and also the pressure that will create right. on, on on the United States and dealing with what will be a refugee crisis. Right. Um, I mean, it arguably already is or was right. a refugee right. pri- crisis, right. but this will be at a totally different scale. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's the kind of issue. And that's not 30 years from now. Right. That's going to be like happening like in five years. Well, less. I mean, let's yeah. hope it's not happening in five years, oh. but it is a it is a more clear and present danger. Right. I um, mean, it's one that we're not. Um, I'm a big believer in adaptation and mitigation and mm-hmm. those being twin um, twin tools. And I, I think that's the kind of com- uh, crisis where we need to be thinking about ap- adaptation. We need to be engaged with development assistance in those countries to diversify their economies um, and stabilize their security situations, which are also driving people to become mm-hmm. um, peace and, and security elsewhere. But yeah, it's a, it's a, looming, it's a looming crisis. And all, uh, there's a, there's chaos theory, as this 
theory of sort of how things work in the world. Um, and it has to do with the idea that these small decisions made at one point create vast Absolutely. impacts down yeah. the road. And so I think one of the things we need to all be thinking about as we make these choices today is that this may not hit your your checkbook this week or this month. Maybe that, you know, the tax vote is certainly more sort of clear and present as a danger for most Americans. Losing the health care is certainly more clear and present a danger. But these big choices to not act on some of these critical long-term issues or to to, to act recklessly on mm-hmm. some of the security issues mm-hmm. will have really serious impacts on, mm-hmm. on checkbooks and, and mm-hmm. livelihoods and security. Right. Um, let's switch. You talked about peace and security. Um, Jenna, let's talk about Me Too, um, NatSec. And tell us, tell us what that was all about, the hashtag, and, you know, what prompted you um, you co-led this this open letter. What prompted you guys to um, create this letter, um, and and what what is in it? What are you asking for? What is, well, we're not you, but I think all of the two hundred and twenty three right. right. signatures, and and then some people maybe who didn't get a chance to sign it. Right. What it what is what is this um, hashtag about? Sure. So I think, um, you know, looking around uh, at all of the various industries um, coming out and talking about disclosures of uh, assault and harassment in their various industries, um, this fall, I think, has been stunning uh, to so many Americans, whether in uh, the halls of Congress or in Hollywood, uh, in the tech industry, and really, frankly, what I think most women have known their whole lives, uh, which is that women are disproportionate uh, victims of harassment and assault, uh, especially in their workplaces. And so looking around uh, at the conversation that was unfolding in this national moment of reckoning on harassment and assault um, that Tarana Burke started 10 plus years ago with the Me Too campaign, uh, we really felt like there was an opportunity to add our voices. Um, and so together with uh, Ambassador Nina Hashigian, my co-author, uh, we pulled together what was an open letter addressed to the national security community, framing uh, the issues we feel confront uh, women in the national security community, which is broadly inclusive of the uh, armed forces, of the civilian defense community, State Department, development workers, contractors, and importantly, locally employed staff who service our bases and embassies and consulates around the world. And so in this letter, we put forward a series of five recommendations that we believe will lead to better and more and safer and more stable workplace environments for women. Um, And I think also really try to draw the connection that, uh, you know, these forms of harassment and assault um, exist along a spectrum of behaviors, uh, among which at one end include things like women being interrupted in meetings and uh, silenced and shut out and shamed. Um, that exists along a continuum, the more severe examples of which certainly being assault. Um, but you know, I think we have to ask some questions here. When women constitute 50% of the entering foreign service class at the State Department and have for years, why then are we only seeing a third of women in senior leadership positions at the State Department? What's happening? Surely these women are not becoming less competent (laughs) over time. They're accruing even more expertise. So where are the women? And the reality is, we don't know. Because there isn't good data. The data that is being collected is not transparent and is not being made widely available. We know that some women choose to leave the national security community for personal reasons, to start a family and make their own choices about where they want to move with their lives and careers. But we also know that many women leave because they are harassed, because they are assaulted, because they're tired of not being paid the same for equal equal pay for equal work. And they're tired of a, a culture of toxic 
masculinity that demeans and shuts them out. Mm -hmm. And so what we're really seeking to do with the movement here is to change the conversation. We believe firmly that women's security is national security, that all of these really complex problems of which we've just scratched the surface in our conversation (laughs) today, you know, really do require all of the best talent that our country has to bring to bear. Um, And right now, 50% of that talent pool uh, is really enduring quite a lot just to be able to do the work. Mm -hmm. And so we're hoping to start conversations um, that will lead to policy changes, um, but will also lead to reflection. Mm -hmm. Because I do think that everyone, regardless of their gender, regardless of their rank and position, can make a contribution to changing uh, what have been cultural norms to create an environment that is more inclusive and tolerant for everyone. And uh, a bit of good news, you know, this year, uh, Congress passed the Women, Peace and Security Act. Yes. Right. And that's huge. Yes. (laughs) Um, Because it's the first time we've seen Congress actually, you know, put some teeth to this to this belief, I think, as you said, Jenna, we, we know that women learn and we know that women have abilities co- to contribute to this to this work. Um, and specifically, it says that um, the sense of Congress is that the United States should be a global leader in promoting the participation of women in conflict uh, prevention, management and resolution um, and recovery efforts, uh, political participation of and leadership of women in fragile environments, particularly during dem- democratic transitions, is critical to sustaining democratic institutions. And it goes on and on. And I think um, Asha Castleberry was on the show mm-hmm. and, you know, she shared her thoughts about being a woman of color yeah. um, ar- abroad in Iraq. And just the uh, tremendous respect and openness that uh, she received from mm-hmm. the, the Iraqi people because she was a woman of color. Right. And that that and, and on top of that, it demonstrates the strength of the United States. Like we're actually living out what mm-hmm. we uphold um, in terms of our in terms of our values. And so I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I, I'm really glad about this law because yeah. it really solidifies that we're serious about not just like talking the talk, but actually walking it and, and holding other people accountable, but also holding ourselves accountable. And it's an area where we could actually cooperate because this yes. is actually a global. Totally. This isn't a, a U.S. M- movement. This Correct. is a global movement. Correct. We have a deputy secretary, secretary general at the U.N., Amina Mohammed, who is out there in the field talking about these issues. So yeah. this is actually a wonderful example of bipartisan yes. cooperation on an issue that is a, a global challenge and a place where the U.S. could start working with our allies and yeah, partners around absolutely. the world to, to yeah. move the needle. I mean, you know, this is one of those things that, yes, it's the right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing mm-hmm. to do. Um, and how wonderful when those two things come together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because truly, we know from the research, we know from experience that when women are at the table and involved in peace negotiations, those negotiations and the processes that they yield are far more durable over time. Uh, than processes that exclude women. And I would say, you know, if you're listening and you're wondering, like, what in the world does this have to do with me, right? I would say this is probably a great job opportunity if you're a woman. (laughs) If anything, if anything at all, um, uh, if you are a woman and you want to get into the foreign policy or the national security space, here now is a declaration by Congress basically saying we want to do more um, bipartisanly we want to do more to make sure that more women are trained and ready to represent the United States and also to support other women. And, and you know, so so if you're a woman uh, somewhere, uh, regardless of your age or, or this is, I think, just uh, uh, an oomph to, to encourage you to to, you know, explore this opportunity for a career. I think this is a, a good time to talk about wonderful 2018 that is just around the corner from us. Um, Claire, you mentioned it's going to be a pivotal year. We've got elections here in the United States. Their elections are all around the world. It's just going to be a very um, transitional um, tipping point, I think, for the world, not just here in the United States. And so I went on to social media and I asked um, if given the mic by an elected official, 
Um, and if this elected official asked you what America could do to encourage um, more stability and cooperation around the world, what would you say? I picked out just a, a, a handful of, of comments that I think are, are very interesting uh, that we will that we will hear and I'll and I'll read from and um, Claire and Jenna will sort of give their thoughts. Um, but first, let's start with Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins and her take on what America could do to encourage more cooperation around the world. Hello, my name is Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, and I am currently the founder and president of the Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict transformation or WCAPS or WCAPS. And I am also uh, a person who worked in the Obama administration for almost the entire eight years at the State Department, where I worked on issues of weapons of mass destruction, like chemical, biological, nuclear weapons, nonproliferation issues, as well as on issues of infectious disease. The way to encourage others to cooperate is to actually cooperate oneself. It's very difficult to ask others to cooperate with each other or with you if, in fact, you're not exhibiting that same desire to cooperate because cooperation is really something that's reciprocal. Unfortunately, in the last in this last year, we've uh, the United States has done a number of things that would not be considered as activities that are cooperative. For example, our position on climate change and pulling out of the climate change agreement and a, lo- a number of other things that we have done that looked very unilateralistic in terms of the U.S. going alone and not working with others. So it's very difficult to promote cooperation, collaboration, or things like that in this environment. So I would say we need to do more things that are collaborative and cooperative, and, uh, and that way we will be convincing. What I've heard from other guests um, and on the show, um, and certainly echoed by Ambassador Jenkins, is that America must do better at living out the values that it upholds. Um, and Claire, you've mentioned our, our credibility issue and, and me being sure that we, we ourselves are doing what we want others to do. And that also actually comes up in other comments from other listeners. Um, either one of you can, can take this, but... Um, I was just thinking, like, do you think the world can go without America leading? I mean, it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is real. That is real that talk. Is real from talk. Claire Casey. <laughs> that is real. People, when we were Washington D.C. was not a happy town, and I would say December 2016, the the mood was dark, and people would say to each other, "Can we survive this?" <laughs> and my answer was always, "What does survival look like?" Right. So, yeah, there'll still be a planet. (laughs) There'll probably still be a United States of America. But what does that country look like? And what it, what does the world around us look like? And 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 so I guess that's my that's my answer, which is we the world is muddling through and stumbling forward. But if you start scanning region by region, you start to see what the absence of U.S. leadership is causing. I think one example that was just um, sort of put in front of me: I was in Brussels doing a, a scenario simulation on Libya. And one of the points made by both um, folks from Europe, but also people who'd come up from Libya for the event, was that because of the colonial legacy, it's very hard for the Europeans to lead there. And mm. having an outside actor, having the United States as a neutral pa- party mm. in the in a leadership position and, and and engaging, that's a messy conflict. With the U.S. involved, would it look a lot better today? I can't say that it would. <laughs> yeah. But the absence is being felt. And I think if you go country by country, a transactional, what's in it for us, very short term approach to our engagement with the world will have very real costs. It'll be felt abroad before it's felt here, but Mm -hmm. it will be felt here. Mm -hmm. What about you, Jenna? What do you think? Can, Can the world, will the world, do they need us? Do they need the United States? Right. Well, I think Claire's point is spot on. I mean, it all depends on what kind of world you want to inhabit. Um, you know, uh, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, of course, uh, you know, the quicksand will will fill in, and I'm sure gaps will be filled. Uh, the question is, by whom, and does that serve our interests? Um, you know, to to listeners who kind of question the utility of engaging uh, abroad when there are pressing issues at home, I would submit that. Uh, 
you, you, it has to be both and. Uh, we're not at a point anymore where we can afford uh, to pull back precisely because we benefit so much from this world order that we have created largely in our own Interest. interest absolutely uh and so give them a little bit of history you took it way back i don't know we, if our listeners know, can truly appreciate can what jenna just back, did like. we could bring it back to 1947 <laughs> we could bring it back to the national security act and talk about what the post-war environment looked like and uh you know look at brenton woods <laughs> Right. People don't it's know in New Brenton Hampshire. Is. Right. It's a lovely <laughs> resort right. in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. This, this is where I'm going to detract a little bit from the rules of my show, which is to not mention things that people may not understand. But I'm just going to say Google Bretton Woods. If you're not familiar with what that is, um, get familiar. It, it goes exactly to what Jenna is talking about and how America, in part, with other Western countries, created. Right. The world as we see it. Right. I mean, the cost of, of U.S. leadership in retreat is uh, that the U.S. doesn't get to make the rules. And when the U.S. doesn't get to make the rules, it's just not going to serve our interests. And others will step up to the plate. Let's uh, take a couple more here um, that are pretty similar. Um, Kyle from East Orange, New Jersey, um, says America should, I would tell the elected official, America should mind its own business, practice what we preach to other countries, fix our racial problems and fix our criminal justice system. And um, Perry from Chicago uh, says something similar. Well, let's listen uh, to what Perry from Chicago has to say. One of the things I'd like to see America do is to stop involving themselves in conflict. One of the big things I that I would notice right now that America is doing is involving themselves uh, with North Korea. Um, one of the main things is the uh, nuclear weapons that I'm seeing that nuclear North Korea is building. Um, the only reason North Korea is building those weapons is due to America's policy of building and really pretty much trying to control the country. So the leader slash dictator has no choice but to do that. So, I mean, if America could stay out of conflict and stop providing to the military industrial complex. I think that would be overall better for Americans. And, you know, if we could focus more on America and making America better for its citizens, um, then we can, you know, go out in the world and, you know, uh, do diplomacy or whatever that we call ourselves doing as uh, in our policies and in legislations towards other countries. Perry and Kyle uh, say things that encapsulate, you know, why I started this show. Um, and and in our launch episode, Ambassador um, Brigitte and Jenna, you've said it here, which is, you know, that American walk, can walk and chew gum at the same time. Absolutely. Right. Um, but having said that, though, um, I don't want to downplay the realities that people face. Mm hmm. At home, when you know Kyle rightfully mentioned some really complex issues Absolutely. like racial justice and the criminal justice system. So, Claire, what, what what would you say to Kyle in this in this case? I think the where he, I think it's a false choice, and it's where, a false choice. It's a false choice. Where it's not a false choice is when you start looking at resources. Mm-hmm. And scarce resources. Mm-hmm. And so you start saying, what can we put into the U.S. education system versus what we put into a new defense system that nobody in the Department of Defense or any of the armed forces really wants, mm-hmm. um, which actually happens. Um, so there is a resource scarcity question. But the things we're talking about, the conduct of foreign policy around the world, the provision of development or assistance or humanitarian relief, these are rounding errors in the U.S. budget. So... I am. When you read uh, the quote from Kyle, I mean, my response is here, here. Absolutely. Strength at home is strength abroad. Let's have a hard look at structural inequality in our society, violence. Um, How do we how do we address those things? I think our education system is a mess. And I think it's part of why we're in the political situation we are today. That can all be done while still being strong abroad. Right. And, you know, only one, I think it's less than 1% of our actual budget goes exactly. to foreign assistance. We, we talked about this. Um, uh, again, if you're listening and you haven't listened to our episode on foreign assistance, um, you know, we talked about this. The number 
right. going abroad to help other countries. If you're talking strictly foreign assistance, it's less than one percent of the of the American budget. But to Claire's point, uh, this is a really small investment in our general health and well-being and future prosperity. Uh, The money that we put into Central America uh, in the Central America Regional Security Initiative to uh, help with the security situation that is really ravaging so many of these countries, especially in the Northern Triangle, is also absolutely about preventing, as Claire noted, massive influxes of illicit goods, weapons, trafficking in people, and also migrants, which we saw with the child migrant crisis in the summer of 2014. So uh, if you look at the migratory crises confronting Europe and the uh, massive strain it has put on so many European economies and the concomitant shift to the right that many of these countries have had politically in part as a response to that migrant presence, I think you can begin to see how it's a pretty good investment of some uh, some chump change. Yeah. Here. And I think, uh, you know, I'll get to the next comment because it's related to sort of I think how Americans can stand to benefit in a world that's sort of functioning. Um, Claire, uh, not not Claire here, but Claire, Claire, Claire uh, is a, a DCer, a Washingtonian, and she talked about how she's in the luxury tourism business. And she was concerned how American foreign policy impacts her business, which is uh, totally valid, right? If you're, you know, perfect example, Cuba, right? You know, we can no longer go to Cuba in the way that we could in the last couple of years under President Obama. So if you had a tourism company and you were setting up wonderful, you know, trips around the country, you've just lost your source of revenue um, at the blink of an eye. Um, And there are numerous examples, um, others, maybe even farmers, um, in the middle of the country who send goods to other countries, you know, if there's instability in those countries, there goes your your source of, of revenue, right? So I, I do believe and I do agree and I hope others like Kyle um, and Perry also sort of see that there's a m- money-making opportunity um, in this individually um, and there's something at stake here if we're not able to cooperate and to support other countries as they develop. Um, it's not a perfect system development it's not perfect but certainly i think it lends itself to 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 prosperity for americans as well um in the long term if 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 you want to start a you know luxury tourism business for example absolutely (laughs) all right let's take this last um comment from tony who is in warwick uh, rhode island go rhode island my home state um he has a great suggestion about the powers of the president when it comes to foreign policy, let's hear what Tony hey, has to say. This is Toyin from Warwick, Rhode Island. And I believe that one thing a congressman or women should do in order to ensure political stability throughout the entire world, curtail the power of the U.S. president. And not only this president, but the last three presidents have been able to get away with egregious acts and I'm talking about the drone strikes. You know, they've been able to bomb the hell out of anybody they want and just say that it's because of terrorism or in the name of terrorism. This has led to countries in, from Afghanistan to Syria, Iraq, Libya, Yemen, Somalia are all infested with U.S. soldiers willing to do work that nobody knows why they're doing. And it's clearly a game of colonialism. And I believe that this is exactly how empires fall when their army is overstretched and reaching, overreaching their boundaries. So I think that's the biggest thing that should be told and lead to world stability. So um, the issue of power is fascinating to me because unlike education or the environment, foreign policy decisions lie in part, in large part, uh, uh, with the president. Large part, huge part. Um, and, and, you know, Congress has some role in that with the with the committees that we've got. And, and certainly, for example, the, the Women in Peace and Security Act is an example of where Congress is is sort of drawing the line and saying these are the things we want this country to be about. So, uh, Jenna, do you 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 worked in State Department? Um, you know, do you think that limiting the power of, of an American president, you know, Republican or Democrat, doesn't matter. But uh, do you think limiting the power of an American president would actually change much of how America does its business around the world? 
Yeah, well, the devil's in the details, right? But uh, I think, you know, this is such an interesting question and and such a... Um, a reflection of ki- the kind of year that we've had <laughs> <laughs> that we're asking these questions um, because I, I don't think we've asked that question in a really long time. Um, it, or has it been a topic in modern history? Because, right, I mean, I, you know, I just I just want to step back and, and comment that um, we have long relied on the president and the office of the presidency to reflect uh, certain norms and behaviors. And what I think we've seen over the last year is how reliant we are upon those norms and behaviors and how few um, of those behaviors are actually codified, Um, that there really has long been this informal understanding Understanding, about what constitutes appropriate conduct right. and posture and leadership right. to afford the nation the right. credibility to engage. Um, that has certainly been tested um, and uh, has made for a number of strange bedfellows um, across the spectrum in the national security community where you have people agreeing on issues who've long been at loggerheads precisely because the behaviors of this president have been so far outside of those accepted norms. Um, But by the same token, I think there should be a kind of a cautionary note because the world moves so fast. Uh, And we do ideally certainly need um, a president who will comport with those norms and behaviors to safeguard American interests, but also to be able to respond with the agility that the 21st century world requires. Yeah, I think the situation is so extreme today. So when we have this conversation, I don't know about you two, but what I'm thinking about is I don't like the person who gets to decide about launching a nuclear weapon. Yep. Like that, I think, is the thing that has provoked this. This That is sure. sort of the ultimate example of presidential authority that we now no longer have confidence in the decision making process or wisdom of right. that would go into that. But I do think that if we take ourselves out of this crisis moment, I think this is actually a broader conversation and one that's been escalating over time across administrations with surveillance powers, right. with drone strikes. Tiny drones, yeah. And I think it's part of, and it's it's a whole other podcast probably. It is. But a conversation <laughs> about congressional dysfunction yep. and unwillingness to cooperate, totally. which has led to an executive that pushed its pushed further That's in right. taking sort of extra, I don't want to say extra legal, but certainly extra normal actions overseas. Yeah. And I think when you were talking, I was thinking about Brexit. And one of the questions I read in an article was, you know, <laughs> is this an example of what happens when, you know, you have a populace that's more or less uninformed about the world, make a decision that impacts the world, right? Are we, I'm not saying that Americans or Brits um, are incapable of learning or, or they're dumb or anything, but I do think that there is some benefit to having, um, uh, I do think there is benefit for having the people speak up about what they think is happening in the world, right? But I also think that we do need to rely on our leaders, be it in Congress or our president, um, to be able to say, you know what, I have access to information that y'all don't have access to as people. So we just have to kind of trust that they're going to make the best decision. And I think that's sort of where Tony is coming from is like, I mean, I do believe in representative democracy. Um, and, and the idea of that being that peop- you you vote for people, for people right. and then it's their job to know the issues right. and to be educated on them and to make informed decisions on your behalf. Yeah. And should they not represent you well, you have the option to vote to them vote out them to someone out. else you like better. Yeah. I don't love referendums. Um, I don't <laughs> yeah. think they're, they're a great way yeah. of doing business in the world. Yeah. Well, you talked about elections, so that means we got to talk about 2018. <clears throat> Claire, we don't have a whole lot of time. If you can think of one issue um, that you're 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 thinking America is going to have to figure this out next year as I watch Claire's head explode (laughs) I mean one issue is hard I would say in terms of things that we don't control entirely an external issue Mm -hmm. I would say that is North Korea I think that is the number one threat to 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 the world and to the United States 
In terms of something we do have control over that actually has huge impact on our foreign policy, I would say it is the 2018 elections, making mm-hmm. sure they are fair, that they are not intervened in by foreign powers. Um, that people and show that up. Pe- people show up, that their, their vote isn't suppressed, um, mm-hmm. and we potentially introduce a little uh, bit more in, of the checks and balances that our government was designed to have. Amen to that. Um, ladies, thank you so much. Um, we're, we're, we're out of time here. So what I like to do is end the show on a positive note. And I've asked Jenna to tell us, you know, a song that keeps her in a good mood <laughs> when she's reading about more bomb threats in North Korea <laughs> or, you know, uh, some humanitarian crisis in Myanmar or wherever. Um, what, what sort of makes you feel good, Jenna? What song? Well, I got to bring it back to my SoCal roots. (laughs) And uh, I grew up uh, on the beach uh, listening to a lot of Sublime. So um, Santeria is my go-to bring it down a notch, (laughs) think of the ocean, deep breaths uh, kind of song, roll the windows down. And, uh, and and take a minute. We, we all need to take a minute. We need to take a breath. And I think there needs to be some space for self-care uh, in all of this, too. Absolutely. And, and Claire, since I didn't get a chance to ask you, you know, beforehand. I love Santeria. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think you were the type, Claire. <laughs> That's, I, I was just going to ask you, you know. In I was in college in the 90s. What well, what do you do for self care, Claire? What do you oh, what are some gosh, things you do? I cook. You, oh, okay. I come home from work and chop vegetables and make a nice dinner. Nice. Um, that is with very sharp knives. <laughs> very sharp knives. Wow. <laughs> um, and thank you all for listening to this episode that wraps up our conversation. Um, I just want to first remind you all that you can listen to the show at WERA.FM. You can listen to it on mixcloud.com slash what in the world podcast. Uh, also, same thing on Facebook. You can find us, and I post great articles and information um, on, on Facebook. So make sure you follow us on Facebook at What in the World Podcast. Also, we are on Twitter at WITW Pod. You can tweet, ask, uh, tweet at me. Um, you can email me. Um, any of these topics that we've mentioned um, throughout the show, if you've got questions, um, burning questions, or issues that you're just not sure about, you know, tweet me, Facebook me, uh, email me at What in the World pod 2017 at gmail.com and uh, my job is to bring awesome guests like Claire and Jenna to the studio to help unpack some of these issues so it's about you um, and I wish everyone an amazing uh, holiday season and a, and a safe and wonderful new year full of self-care great music great food um, and great people so thank you for listening <laughs>